Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in western Montana. All right, so we are here today with our friend and fellow farmer, Brian Herbel, uh, who lives about two drainages away from us on the west side of the valley here in Stevensville, Montana. Uh, today we're going to dive a bit into his background, um, hopefully share some stories of his career as an archaeologist, but also gain some knowledge on the type of farming that he's doing here in the valley. Uh, both with raising animals as well as flowers and a variety of specialty crops. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, thanks Let's for coming, Brian. Let's get started. Pleasure. Appreciate Glad it. to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for this podcast. Me too. Um, well, to start, I was flipping through Instagram uh, a few days ago, as many people do, and I came across this kind of random post. Um, it's a, I guess it's a company that makes purses and other fashion apparel and accessories they're called collective fashion justice which is a mouthful in of itself um a bit uh, presumptuous if i may presume but uh <laughs> they they're talking about the agriculture industry and specifically the the cattle industry and how they believe that it's destroying the planet and that it's gonna cause world war 10 and <laughs> and everything's gonna wither away and we'll just be left with a bunch of cow leather bags at I least they'll last they will last <laughs> they'll last forever <laughs> and uh this is their this is a quote on their on their instagram post would would we rather somewhat regenerate some agricultural land or totally rewild large swaths of the earth creating habitat for a wider array of wildlife and and biodiversity a transition beyond our systems of animal-based agriculture and exploitation could help make that possible. It's time for wealthy nations in particular to make the transition, recognizing the significant and harmful impact we have made on the planet and those we share it with. If you like the sounds of, the, of this future fashion system, consider endorsing the Total Ethics Fashion Manifesto, which is linked in their bio. And you can go read that if you want. Um, but they, their reference of this was actually referencing a 127-page article i would say it's not really a study i don't think they really studied anything they were just kind of compiling information um so i would say it's a, a long-winded article yeah and I mean, if like i had to read that paragraph four times right to, to, <laughs> yeah. and i'm still not really sure what they're trying to say it's just, just from a basic like marketing clarity perspective it's right. already confusing so i can't imagine that their manifesto is like any more clear yeah plus whenever you hear manifesto I, yeah. just, I just think of the Communist Manifesto, and I just yeah. take a step Or the back. Unabomber's Manifesto. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> it's definitely got some negative baggage as a yeah. you know, word. but It's certainly a loaded word. Yeah. One of the things that they said, actually, was um, a global plant-based transition could free up 3 billion hectares of land to rewilding, which is a really loaded sentence there. So let's break that down. Like, 3 billion hectares of land, which is a fuck ton of land. It's a fuck ton of land. It is. So I looked at this uh, this article and read through. Um, I didn't read through the, all the 127 pages, but read through enough to kind of get a, a gist of what they were talking about. And they actually did a pretty good job breaking down the two sides of the argument. And the two sides of the argument is that animals, uh, especially ruminants, used improper man agricultural management practices can actually improve 
our agricultural lands, sequester carbon, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard of regenerative agriculture by now, if you've been listening to this podcast or just been paying attention. Mm-hmm. But then the other side of it is that animals, no matter what, no matter where these ruminants are and what they're doing, they're farting and burping up carbon dioxide <laughs> and methane and sure. nitrous oxide, and they're destroying the planet. So those are two sides of the argument in this article, and they go into exquisite detail, if I may say, on those two sides. But 3 billion hectares of land, there's right now in 2017, there was an article, excuse me, this article referenced another research study from Godet et al. in 2017, and they estimated in this in this study that there's between 2,600 to 6,100 million hectares of land uh, as grasslands, which is a yeah. pretty far-reaching estimate. That's like one to three times the amount yeah. <laughs> as the low end. And 3 billion hectares of land would be about 25% of the Earth's surface. Yeah, that seems like a lot. It does seem like a lot. Mm. And so what... So, all right, let, let's entertain their their opinion on this or their their. And they're cause. just wanting to eliminate animals from those acreages. I, I assume so. How specifically, I assume, yeah. right? Because it'd be insane for an organization to then say that we need to, like, kill off any antelope or deer or um, no other ungulates are coming to my mind right now. But Yeah, and not just ungulates, but just all ruminants as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, goats, I mean... Mm. It's all about a balance, really. Like, if, like, sure, the burping and farting is not good, but like, there's ways I would think to mitigate that through different practices rather than just like eliminating them altogether. Yeah, yeah. They, they. So this is it's frustrating. Ash and I were having a little conversation about this before uh, before you came here, Brian. But their their understanding is they're they're looking at the cow, looking at the ruminant in a very myopic point of view right there they're they're not looking at this as a whole systems approach or a whole yeah. you know as part of a whole system and they're just looking at it as like how can we make a better handbag or like a better pair of socks or something like i, I guess and, so and put a hashtag ethical <laughs> right they're tr- and i think they have good uh, good intention in mind is they're trying to have positive impact on this world through sure. business which is fine yeah. and i i totally agree with that but don't don't talk about things that you have no expertise in. Like you guys may make fashion, fashion accessories and apparel. Yeah. Why are you telling farmers how to, how to manage their lands? Yeah. We're not telling you how to make handbags. Maybe right. we should start. I mean, on the other side of the coin, you look at an organization like Patagonia who involves themselves in a lot of, you know, as a clothing manufacturer involves themselves in a lot of uh, global causes and supports, things but they're not like they don't have a manifesto i would say but they they throw their weight as a corporation into things that they find valuable that are super diverse as far Mm -hmm. as protecting the planet protecting the environment clean water Mm -hmm. good farming practices good animal husbandry practices like i think that would be a better example than like a yeah like a kind of trendy instagram clothing yeah it's more refined, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, through Patagonia. It's, yeah, what are they they're again? they're not saying that because they need. I mean, they they make products with merino wool, among other um, Patagonia does. Yeah, mm-hmm. among other mm-hmm. um, raw commodity inputs for sure. their clothing and stuff. But they're not saying that because these ruminants are causing climate change, 
that we should take them off the the land and the landscape. No, they're saying like, how can we manage these populations in a responsible way? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that That's seems way more reasonable. Right. Yeah, but these people are saying that we should take away all ruminants off of the the landscape that are based in in animal, uh, uh, excuse me, agricultural. Uh, methods mm. or animal based agriculture is the is which the term. you know if you were to do that maybe that opens the door for a more catastrophic problem because even though there's the burping and farting of methane like there's got to be a balance that's tangible by having those animals here yeah and say we you know if i had a magic wand and i were to take all of the animal based um ruminants off the landscape and you want to rewild this these three billion hectares of land Okay, so let's talk about what animals are going to come back on the land. Cervids, yeah. bovids, and yeah. so bovids include mountain goats, mountain she- or yeah, mountain goats, uh, bighorn sheep. They include water buffalo. They include yeah, cows. Yeah. yeah. Well, not just those, but this is actually the the family of. Oh sure, sure. And so there's like something like I don't know sixty or seventy species in that yeah. family, and then the cervids, the cervidae family, they have over 160. So that's yeah. your all of your deer, elk, monk jack moose reindeer etc and so you if we were to rewild let's entertain their their opinion if we were to rewild these landscapes these animals are going to come back on the on the lands and these are ruminants so the same mm-hmm. methane that's coming out of the ass of the cow is is going to come out of the ass of the elk mm-hmm. so like what are we fixing besides yeah. destroying the economies of rural lands. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't see the solution. Is... It's the Australia conundrum, right? You bring in the snakes to eat the frogs and et cetera, and then you just like, by throwing things out of balance, you just create like this cascade of error yep. mm-hmm. that you just have to keep trying to fix on a scale that should have never been there. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. And where is that line between... <clears throat> What humans, like, we are on this planet. We are making an impact, of course. If we want Mm -hmm. to feed ourselves, it's just part of the life cycle here is that we do have to cause change to the surface of the earth in order to grow food. But where's that boundary between humans putting in, I guess, putting too much action to work, perhaps? Like, bringing in, like, rewilding (laughs) by taking off cows and letting the land do its thing, it's like that in itself is going to have some impact that isn't necessarily just perfected with nature, you know? Mm-hmm. Plus, as as we know, like, uh, that land would probably just turn into bindweed in, like, yeah. you know, a week. <laughs> or, yeah. And then you have, like, this catastrophic weed, noxious weed right? problem because right. those animals aren't there to help control that. And yeah. So then what are you going to use, like, chemicals to, like, control that <laughs> problem? Because you're, like rewilding this land but it's really just allowing maybe undesirable plants to be like sweet there's no more cows yeah we've yeah. got a chance there's no irrigation <laughs> yeah you know because yeah. like bindweed yeah. and cheatgrass like that stuff comes from areas that aren't irrigated yeah. right and i would imagine their statistic of like this uh three billion hectares is like you know i'd be curious to know how much of that is irrigable yeah you know yeah. Or if it's just dry land right savannah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and they're uh one of their they want to take away animal based agriculture and and put in plant based agriculture so let we can talk a little bit about um uh rangeland agriculture in the west um for people who are in cities you might not understand this but there are millions of hectares of land that is uh managed by the bureau of land management among others national forests as well that um grazing leases are leased to 
uh, ranchers. Mm -hmm. And these are areas with really low population densities as when in, um, specific to how many cows or how many sheep or how many goats are allowed to uh, range on that land per acre. So like sometimes it's one cow per hundred acres. It's a really low density because these areas are not productive enough mm -hmm. for these animals to be in, in denser populations as opposed to maybe like um, irrigable grasslands or um, pasture. Mm -hmm. Pasture, you might get down to one cow per acre, but in these areas, it's, it's a cow per hundred acres. Mm -hmm. So you want to then, okay, so you want to take these lands, quote unquote, rewild them, but then also start growing row crops of soy, corn, and wheat. <laughs> so you're talking about millions of acres of uh, sagegrass land that is invaluable to the ecosystem surround here. Can you imagine oh, plowing yeah. <laughs> those? Like all the of, east side. <laughs> yeah, like the, all the east side here. But if you've been through the, the Central Valley of Idaho, the Snake mm -hmm. River Valley. Oh, yeah. It, uh, what, what they're proposing is basically throwing everything wildly out of balance. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. it, it would just be totally fucked. And While selling persons. It, it would be a cascade mm -hmm. of error. Like the, yeah. the planet would just yeah. not recover from. I think we need to just, just slow down a little. Like everybody needs to slow down. Yeah. There's so much information out there. And then all of a sudden they think that they have an expertise or an opinion on the matter. Like go, go read the 127 page article right. that they're referencing. Like yeah. don't just take it as, as face value. Yeah. Find out if that 127 pages is even accurate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or warranted or, yeah. you know, yeah. like who funded it? Do they yeah. have an agenda? Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, I don't know. Who knows? And I, I think, too, one of the things we saw in this initial Instagram post, they had said, what was it? They were like, there's over 300 professional citations backing this science or, yeah, yeah backing this information. But then as we started to look through, we we're like, well, these citations, half of them are for the opposite side of your argument because <laughs> the paper was covering right. both sides. Yeah. And so it's like people just grab this information that. I think, you know, they probably mean well. Hopefully they mean well. Mm -hmm. But they're trying to hop onto some sort of trend that's not really actually a trend to make a point that's not really a point that's needing to be made. And just for the sake of, yeah. I don't know, creating social media follows. I'm not well, they're sure. trying to sell handbags that are not yeah. made from cow leather, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like how easily statistics can be manipulated is pretty mm -hmm. insane. Yeah. I mean, you can like... I used to joke around with people on the beekeeping front that if I ever had a problem, I would just like, I would just Google it until I found the answer that like I wanted. And I'd be like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's gotta be what it is. That must be, you know, and it's like, but you don't, it, it's so hard to like separate out manipulated statistics and mm -hmm. like, it's just, it's becoming increasingly impossible. And like all that you can really do is like be where you're at and get your hands dirty and like be based in your own reality. Like, right where you are mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, that's kind of like there's no misinformation in that yeah, yeah. and that's what farmers do that's yeah what farmers for real do. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we manage a... our lands you, you who you in the city are not are not man managing any land we yeah. are right yeah. yeah so trust us right just like we trust you and whatever you guys do out there like yeah. trust us as well yeah we make mistakes just like you do too yeah and you we're make willing... a, a sweet vegan handbag awesome great I probably yeah, it might it. look great and that's you know good for you good on you yeah yeah probably yeah. not gonna buy one no <laughs> no me neither and taking it like going back to the cow thing and and looking at the cow in this very myopic view this very 
you know, clouded view where you're not looking at a whole systems approach. Yeah. An example that I uh, mentioned to Ashley earlier today was what if I decided to use that same methodology um, and look at beavers in, on the <laughs> land and be like, well, beavers cut down millions of trees a year, so they are destroying habitat and we should kill all beavers. I mean, yeah. it's kind of, the, it's following the same ideology. Yeah. Beavers got a beef. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's go fucking kill beavers. <laughs> Fashion justice. All right, let's, gonna come after you now. Yeah, right. <clears throat> All right, let's move on. Yeah, I think that's enough of that guy. Yeah. Um. Well, why don't we uh, dive into you a little bit, Brian, okay. and start us off telling us where you're from. I am uh, from Wyoming. I was born in Laramie. Oh. Uh, I lived. From Laramie to Elk Mountain to Riverton and then to Jackson Hole uh, in like 77, I think we moved there. My father was the game warden, Okay, which is why we moved around a little bit when I was really young. And then my mother worked uh, in the school system there in Jackson. So that's pretty much where I grew up was uh, in Wyoming. So he was a game warden in uh, the Bighorn? No, uh, in the Tetons. In the Tetons? Yeah, but he... He'd worked at this, there's an in-holding ranch in Grand Teton Park called Whitegrass Dude Ranch, and that's where he and my mother met. He was a cowboy, and she was one of the cabin girls. <laughs> and um, they, it was in the 50s, I think, they met there. Yeah. So he was, he was familiar with the area. In fact, I, when we lived in Riverton, uh, where I went to kindergarten, I think, he was either going to get transferred to Matitsi, Wyoming, or Jackson Hole, and we ended up going to Jackson. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of a different Jackson Hole back then, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's my dad and my brother still live there. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how they do it. It's, yeah. it's pretty crazy now. Yeah. I visit there as often as I can, but I would never see myself living there again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how could anybody afford it? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. It's like a one bedroom house is going for like $2 million. Yeah. But I mean... As a place to grow up, it was great. My yeah, my yeah. dad's patrol district was the Grovant Mountains on the mm-hmm. east side of the valley. Uh, and he was, of course, familiar with the Tetons from working at the ranch, but the Grovants were a whole other, whole different ecosystem. It was really wild. I so, love it up there, yeah. When I first came out to the west, I stopped there for about a month. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wild place. Yeah. We used to go back in there in the winter. Uh, there's a bunch of elk feed grounds back there, and we'd take a snowmobile back in there and uh, he and I with a trailer and, you know, get bales of hay and feed elk. And, really? Yeah, I was probably 10 or 12 years old. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So you'd feed the wild elk as as a game warden? Uh, in in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Which Just is because a- of, you know, their some of their resources have changed because of the population in the valley. And mm-hmm. it was always a controversial thing, actually. Uh, I yeah. can't speak too much to it. I can't yeah, recall yeah. How it ended up, but there's the National Elk Refuge in Jackson where they feed. And then they had all these little satellite ones up in the Grovant. Interesting. Yeah, because yeah, it's just... a big winter rangeland right there in Jackson Hole. Yeah. I so mean, hundreds. They were basically just trying to help out the population mm-hmm. to keep it keep it at a high number. Yeah. 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 Did you mm-hmm. see much? Uh, there is some studies in the past few years about the migratory uh, the ways for mule deer in that area. And they were tracking mule deer that were moving like a hundred plus miles through that area to their winter rangelands. 
and they would actually <clears throat> the offspring of these mule deer they may, mainly they were the females but they would actually pass down these uh, uh, um, migration corridors to their offspring. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah then the pronghorn too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the outside of the, uh, the porcupine caribou herd. I think it's the largest land migration in North America. Of uh, pronghorns. Yeah. Oh, wow. Out of the Teton park down into Southern Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just lower elevation over there. Yeah, but those corridors are getting all jammed up too by development. It's oh, starting yeah. to be a thing kind of down more towards Pinedale. Mm-hmm. Plus, you have, uh, was it I 70 there that they have to cross? Uh, nine. S- well, that's way, that's like Evanston. Or is it I 80? Yeah, I that's like it's I-90, one of the major. I think. Yeah. Well, it's it's south of, of Teton, is what I was talking about, down into over those mountains, down to the southern part of Wyoming. Uh, you don't really hit an interstate until it goes across uh, the very bottom. Okay. Yeah. All right. Maybe I'm thinking of the mule deer research. Yeah. Either yeah. way. Um, well, when did you come to the Bitterroot? Because uh, you were in Kentucky? No, I went to grad school. I went to school at Weber State, went back to Wyoming, skied a couple of winters, and then uh, went to grad school at University of Idaho, uh, got a master's in anthropology archaeology and then uh went out to seattle worked out there a couple years for a firm cascadia archaeology and then back to i knew that i didn't want to live in seattle yeah it's like no way (laughs) (laughs) this is terrible uh and then i came back and had a house in driggs idaho for a couple years and then um came up here in like 2001 i think Mm -hmm. 2001 started working for a company in missoula oh okay okay. you've been here uh, since Cultural resource management is what it would be called, mm. is the style of uh, archaeology I do. And what is that style? It's more like uh, regulatory compliance rather than academic. Okay. Okay. And who needs to be regulated? Uh, some would say everybody, some would say <laughs> nobody. <laughs> uh, it's all just uh, the Antiquities Act and the... Um, Archaeological Resources Protection Act. So anytime there's federal funding uh, that's just attached to a ground-disturbing project where the archaeological survey is one of the facets. Mm. Like what would an example be? Um, like power lines, roadways? Power lines, roads, fiber optics. I've done a lot of like dam relicensing. Mm-hmm. Uh, FERC stuff, gas pipelines. Uh, What's FERC a, stuff? What's that? FERC? FERC, uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Committee. Oh, okay. So that's like all of like gas pipelines and oil pipelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing a big water pipeline right now. There's transmission lines, road realignments. Um, I did a project up in Kalispell once that was funded by the Federal Railway Administration. They were going to pull some tracks and make a bike path. Mm-hmm. And so it was federally funded, and they were going to pull a historic rail line. So I had to go evaluate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done stuff for HUD. I've done stuff for Federal Housing Authority, Army mm-hmm. Corps of Engineers, just it, any federal agency, yeah. really. Yeah. And so when you go out there um, for a project analysis, yeah. So I think people have this conception in their mind about archaeology yeah. and, you know, a man with his hammer and brush out there. Um, brushing away at things, trying to find some super cool, <laughs> really old stuff. Yeah. What's it really like? <laughs> uh, less glamorous. Yeah. It's not like you see on the TV. Right. Really. 
there's there's times I've gotten to do some pretty big excavations. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one. Well, I used to work for a company called Historical Research Associates in Missoula. That's who hired me here in Montana originally. Um, and we did a road project north of Drummond where they just couldn't change the design. And so then we do what's called a data recovery excavation. And that's when you can really slow down and be very academic. But it's it's really rare because the best way to preserve things really is to avoid them or leave them intact. Right. So oh, yeah. I think in the old days they used to call that like a salvage excavation okay it's not the best term but uh so it's rare in my career that i've got to do really large kind of go as slow as you like excavations Mm -hmm. but i have done quite a few of them but uh i went out on my own about seven years ago okay started rabbit brush archaeological services and mostly now i just do smaller projects i do a lot of architectural history um like next week, I'm going to go to Bozeman and uh, define the Bozeman International Airport Historic District. Define it? Yeah. What does that mean? Just inventory all the old hangars and evaluate them. And uh, basically, when I when I use the word evaluate, whether it's a prehistoric site or a historic site, you're you know you have to like kind of evaluate them towards. Uh, if they would be eligible to be in the National Register of Historic Places. Okay. So there's like certain criteria mm-hmm. that I have to like weigh things against. What kind of criteria would that be? Um, one, so there's four criteria. One is if it's uh, associated with a person that's significant in history. Uh, the other one's if it's associated with an event that was important in history. And then the third one, criteria C, is uh, if it's a resource that embodies a distinctive uh, design or the work of a master something along those lines and then the last one's kind of a catch-all is if it if it just would contribute to the general knowledge of history yeah so cool. sometimes if I find a site where there's like you know redundant or it's been compromised and has no integrity um, then it tends to not meet any of the criteria mm-hmm. like an old dump site. Yeah, an old dump site. Although some of those can be really important. Like if they, you know, say it was at a like an old sheep camp or something where they, like you can tell there's this range of occupation through the artifacts, like maybe from the late 1800s up until the whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was like all nice and intact. And it's like. It's where it was really important for those people at the time. Yeah. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, uh, when you're talking about rangeland and grazing allotments, it, it reminded me of. Um, working in surveying uh, phosphate mining leases in southeastern Idaho in these massive aspen groves. And we'd find a lot of, like, uh, dendroglyphs, like tree carvings from uh, Basque sheep herders. But then you'd also find these cairns on these, like, high points, and those were usually – those would usually mark the grazing allotment boundaries. Oh, Oh, cool. Uh, I do a lot of primary source research too, so often, depending on which um, forest service district you're working on, uh, they would have like old original grazing allotment handwritten sheets, and so you can like you can tie everything together through wow. some primary source stuff. So these Basque sheep—they were sheep, right? Yeah, they're from the Basque region of Spain. Yeah, originally, yeah, yeah. and so they came over about late eighteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah, so. They did a lot of the sheep stuff in Idaho and then, you know, through time transitioned to uh, 
kind of running things and now a lot of the herders you'll see even today are uh, usually like ecuadorian or peruvian mm-hmm. yeah yeah but cool. well yeah and so are you based is there like a a radius that you are able to work based on like your credentials or yeah is it kind of the same across all the states somewhat same across all the okay. states but really i limit myself to the west but yeah. i've worked i've worked in pretty much every western state except arizona and new mexico um but i've been all the way up to alaska i did a great project up there cool what was that project uh it was a transmission line across kubernoff island out of petersburg but hmm. um it was like uh it was greenfield which means like there's nothing there prior so you're just like striking out across mm-hmm. um it was really wild you know, we got dropped off by a helicopter every day and picked up and the pilot was like, he's like, oh, I'm colorblind. So you gotta make sure <laughs> someone's wearing yellow. And like, we, we didn't have any emergency beacons or a satellite phone. And it was just, uh, he, he was like, well, I'll find you at four o'clock. Uh, uh, I'll he, find you. Yeah. He's like, just go to a place where you're really visible, make sure someone's wearing yellow and I'll find you. And it was great. Cause every day at like three fifty nine, <laughs> you know, chopper, chopper. And but it like it was I respected that punctuality because like if he was late, oh it was gosh. for a good reason. Yeah, it, yeah. it's not just because he was like fucking around in town or like forgot or something. It's because like the weather is bad or something. Mm-hmm. And we all had gear to spend the night out, but yeah. uh, that was a wild project. That kind of sounds like your time in mining, honey. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I had similar situations where we'd be dropped off in the morning, picked up yeah. at the end of the day. Our pilot was not colorblind, though. As far as I knew, pilots could not be colorblind. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, he was. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was a. Uh, he had flown in Vietnam, and yeah. he was a classic Alaska character. But yeah, grandfathered in maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I remember the moment I got in the helicopter, I was like, "We're good." Yeah, this guy's got it. Yeah, yeah. that's good. It's like, yeah, he's on it. Uh, but you know, we'd sit there and wait for him. We'd make a fire. Yeah, we'd, like munch on cloudberries and cranberries and blueberries. And nice cloudberries. What are those? Uh, it's just funny. We worked with these botanists, and they they pointed them out. It's like it's a little berry on top of a singular stem. It, it looks like a blackberry, but they're kind of like salmon colored, huh. and they just like taste like heavy cream. It's really oh, wild. Amazing. Do they store well? I don't think so. No, kind of like salmon berries or whatever. Yeah. yeah although Pimples. I have a buddy that's a teacher up in Alaska, and I saw he made a post a while ago. Um, he had been collecting. He freezes cloudberries mm-hmm. and makes jam with them. Wait, yeah. is it cloud or glad? Cloud. Oh, cloud. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, I've never heard of that. It's, that's probably just up more in northern northern yeah, latitudes. I would think so. I've yeah. never heard of them before either. But yeah. it was a uh, it was something we always did while we were waiting for the chopper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, why not? Yeah. 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 So, what did you find up there with this work? Um, in the middle of the island, it, it had been logged before, so a lot of historic sites, and then. Uh, Lots of, uh, not lots, but like I think three different uh, mink farms. Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Was, which was pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah, just being. Of recently or? No, they were abandoned. They were pretty old, but like usually like a cabin or two and then just like rows and rows and rows of these little pens. Yeah. Oh. Where they would raise mink. Huh. Do you yeah. have a way of trying to like determine the age of something like that? When you're out there? Associated artifacts, like cans, are generally really helpful. Like, uh, you know, the old solder dot cans are hole in the top or Mm -hmm. hole in the cap Mm. or solder seamed. And then once you hit, uh, they call them sanitary cans, I think, in the 30s, Mm -hmm. which is kind of 
identical to our modern canned yeah food um, plastic lined yeah and then uh there's there's a lot of ways you can uh date bottles by size and type and uh embossing marks and stuff mm-hmm. like that cool and is, then go ahead oh okay uh this is this is a definitely newbie question in terms of archaeology and history but what is the defining parameters i guess for historic versus prehistoric is it strictly a date range uh historic's a hard date range anything that's 50 years and older okay so like now we're getting into the funny part of historic architecture where like some trailer parks are becoming you know historic yeah and like uh <laughs> you know, the interstate highway system Mm. and like kind of bigger, more, you know, it's not necessarily like a little nice little Victorian house or a farmstead. Now it's like, you know, oil refineries. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, I, uh, uh, I had to do a project up by Missoula where, uh, I ended up inventorying part of the old Smurfit stone site. Smurfit. Uh, the, what is it now? Is it like a quarry or? No, it's oh. the, the big uh, out in Frenchtown, the mill. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's gone through various iterations and now I'm not really sure what's going on out there. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely industrial sites, military sites. Um, I did a project once for HRA where we were contracted to survey all the northern border crossings because a lot of those buildings were historic. Mm. Okay. Like some of them were built by the CCC in the 30s or they have a distinctive style of architecture what's the ccc uh civilian conservation corps okay yeah 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 and that's like the the crossings along the canadian border then yeah oh interesting Uh, especially a lot of the ones in washington and idaho okay and the ccc came out of the depression uh same with the wpa yep works progress administration just as a way to like get people to have jobs yeah like hey let's go Build infrastructure and like yeah. do all this. You know, build some roads or build some ditches. And, yeah, yeah. You know. It hired millions of of people oh, yeah. during the depression. Yep. Yeah, that was who was that again? Was that Roosevelt that put that into order? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of pulled us out up from our bootstraps or by yeah. our bootstraps. It, it was really uh, it was really wild, and I I think something like that was recently proposed again. It's just like a, a thing. Yeah. Doesn't seem. Seems like it worked in the past. Seems like it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people who would. <clears throat> Want some jobs right now? Yeah, I don't really. know. Maybe people are too lazy these days, though. Yeah, it's well, true. When you get desperate, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe <laughs> you gotta wait for that point. Uh, but yeah, I've worked all over the West. I, I'm, uh, you know, I have a master's degree, so that kind of gets me a credential to kind of work anywhere. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't presume to work in like the Southeast or something, mm-hmm. where the, just the artifacts and the site types are different, and maybe I wouldn't recognize them as readily or that as responsibly, yeah. scientifically responsibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So. Uh, I used to kind of specialize in like prehistoric lithics, but like lately I've kind of been doing more historic type stuff, but can you define lithics? Uh, stone tools. Okay. Yeah. And to get back to your question about like an age for like what constitutes prehistoric or some would say pre-contact. Um, it's kind of a, a funny term. Prehistoric is kind of being phased out. Okay. Um, but there's really not a great replacement. Hmm. So it's kind of hard to, parse that out but uh what's the argument for phasing that out uh it's just maybe a loaded term and it's not it's not doing respect to the to the you know the tribes Mm -hmm. which i as a philosophy always you know defer to their thoughts and you know feelings towards any of it like i've worked on projects where we've had 
tribal monitors or tribal involvement and you know they're like they're right we're basically digging up digging up their stuff yeah you know and that's like not some tribes really 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 don't want you to do that Fair. Some tribes are interested some are not it's just they all have different paradigms and mm-hmm. you have to be respectful of those yeah mm-hmm. you know i did a project up between libby and troy once in an area that was really important to a tribe that out of respect to them i won't name but they uh we've found really unusual things that i i thought was unusual and and it was in a, a place where their origin story takes place, mm. you know, and it was overheard. One of the monitors kind of overheard us talking about like, wow, these are really, you know, unusual things that we're finding. And he was like, well, you're like, you're digging in our church. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, this isn't where we hunted. This isn't where we processed things. This isn't where we camped. Like, we came here to do specific things. Mm-hmm. That Would you be willing to talk about what you found? It's like a, a, a basket or the, the edge of a basket, like some decorative things, like uh, maybe clip the edge of a house pit, which like shouldn't have been there. Just l- l- as a logically as a thing on a landscape, it was in a it was at a, yeah, a funny strange spot. place to yeah. us. To, to them, it wasn't. It, mm-hmm. Of course, it's there because that's where they. Now, did. now, did uh, whoever was excavating there? Did they get approval from the trouble? Council or whatever term you use. No, it was contentious. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a Bonneville Power project, and mm-hmm. they're like, "We got to build this power line, and there's no other place to do it." Hmm. Interesting. And so it's like, and you know, the tribe doesn't own the land. The Forest Service owned it. So, so this wasn't in reservation land. No. Okay. But it was. It was a a traditional cultural property. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was also one of the only projects that, at the end. I uh, and I developed really good relationships with some of the tribal members, and it was one of the only projects where I got to take all of the artifacts and take them back to uh, the elders oh, and cool. return it to the tribe. And it was funny, is at this meeting, and uh, you know they introduced a bunch of Bonneville Power people in, in English, and then when they got to me, my friend uh, started speaking in his language to the elders, who were mostly women. And uh, they all started laughing. <laughs> and, but I took that as a, as a, a great, um, I don't know, a, a nod to our relationship that yeah. he took the effort to speak, you know, like the kind of like pulling one over on me was like an act of like respect to me. Yeah. It's just like that kind of, you know, there's a lot of good humor among tribal folks. And like, I felt like that was, that was a, a good Humor is a form kind of, of flattery. A, yeah, it was a good or moment. Or a welcoming. It was, yeah. it was really nice to be able to return their artifacts to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really they cool. They probably valued that for sure. Yeah, and then, yeah. Uh, you know, nobody asked what they were going to do with them because it wasn't really our business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right, so lithic. Yeah. So I've heard of, like, what is it called? Lithic structures? Is that a, a term? Uh, lithic technology, lithic just like technology? how you make uh, stone tools. Okay. You know, it's a... Uh, you know, there's stone tools. Like one of the things I really enjoyed archaeologically was studying firecracked rock features, uh, where you would like. There's a way to tell if you find like a quartzite boiling stone if it's been like just heated or if it's been heated and then used as a boiling stone for cooking because then mm. it's introduced mm. to a cooler environment and it like fractures differently. Mm. And then there's just uh, making stone tools out of 
things that uh, it would be called conchoidally. They conchoidally fracture. Mm-hmm. Uh, obsidian, um, jasper, chalcedony, chert. Um, whole chert. Uh, that's what we were uh, climbing on in the fins. Yeah. Yeah, in it's the silica-based, right? Yeah. In limestone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then uh, some basalts, um, but, you know, obsidian is kind of like the classic one. Yeah. And, like, conchoidally means, like, if you were to if you were to shoot a BB at a window, mm-hmm. you know, and it'll, it'll hit, and then it kind of makes a cone on the back end. Yep, from, um, the, from the pressure? or Just of how it fractures. Okay. And so that's the physics behind stone tools is, like, if you were to hit a piece of obsidian, like on top of its head, if you had a cobble, it, it's all of that fracture energy is just going to go within it. Oh, look I, at that! I wish we had video so we could post. Uh, yeah, like put yeah. a put a photo up for right. folks, but we'll so, we'll, uh, well they, can, they can pause it. Yeah. Yeah. But if you have something where there's an edge, right? Like a, if you're making an arrowhead or a scraper or some sort of cutting tool, and you use like a soft thing, like the like an antler you're still making that cone, but because most of that cone's energy is going off into space because you're just hitting the edge, Mm -hmm. it'll pull like a really flat flake off. And Mm -hmm. so that's how, uh, you know, flint napping. Yeah. That's the science of flint napping, (coughs) which I used to do a lot uh, when I was at University of Idaho. But when I started to play music, they're they're not very compatible hobbies because you just cut the shit out of your hands, (laughs) even with protection and stuff like Making stone tools with obsidian is, it's fun, but it's, it, yeah, I've got some scars. seems difficult, yeah. too, because you can, if you do it one wrong way, the whole point will just oh, fracture. Just yeah. 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 Certainly gives you a level of respect and appreciation uh, for it, people doing that ancestrally. Some of the artifacts I've found is, like, I have no idea from a just physics point, like, how yeah. they made those things. Yeah. 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 Maybe they had a different level of patience back then and precision. Yeah. yeah. Less distraction. <laughs> yeah. Now there's, I'm trying to remember the name, it's just blanking right now, but there's a, a particular projectile point that um, it's, I think it's kind of used as a, a way to uh, signify the way we made uh, projectile points before and after, but it's, what's, there's a, it's kind of like a modern version. How uh, like a, no, no, it's not necessarily like the, the, the actual bow, if you will. Yeah. It's the actual specific point and how there's like a, a carved out. Uh, there's the, um, the Folsom point has, it's like, a on a knife, it'd be called like a fuller groove because mm-hmm. it like when you, because there's basically like this divot in it. Yeah. If you were to hit an animal, it lets it, it bleed enables out. it to bleed out a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then before that was like the Clovis, like you basically start with like a thrusting spear and then you transition to a thing called an atlatl, which is like, uh, like a lever on your arm when you hold mm. with a couple fingers. Like a chuck it kind of. Like a chuck it, but with a <laughs> with a long spear. Yeah. yeah. They would call it a dart a dart point. Yep. And then later in uh later in time when you transition to the bow and arrow, like arrow points are really small. Yep. Because you know, you can't if there's this big honking dart point, it's not gonna go that far. <laughs> no. Unless yeah. you have an atlatl, which you can throw really long ways. Cool. With a lot of energy. Yeah. And it's heavy too. It's super heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then there was the Clovis point. Clovis point. Yeah. And what, dif- what, what differentiates just a regular point versus the Clovis? Uh, size. Size. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just gen- like, uh, they call it, um, seriation dating would be like, 
being able to differentiate things by like size and shape okay rather than like radiocarbon dating or potassium argon or something like that so um i recently i'm doing a big water pipeline project in the eastern part of the state and we found that uh the, probably the base of a projectile point, which by the size and shape of it can only be kind of one type. Uh, it's a hasket point that's probably around 8,000 years old. 8,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I didn't find anything like that for a while. So It's a long it was, time ago. Yeah. It was a long time ago. It was right Amazing. on the surface. Really? Wow. Yeah. But this is something I've always thought about in archaeology, too. Is like, you know, so that's 8,000 years old, uh, but that doesn't mean like that's where it's from, right? Because mm-hmm. like... It's true maybe people in times that were like 3000 years old, you know, are walking along and they find this point mm-hmm. and they're like, sweet. This must a- be 5,000 years old. Or, or no, they're like, there's, <laughs> there's a knife. I'm going to take that. Fair. Yeah. And they yeah. carry it around and like use it. So yeah. things can get confused. You know, yeah. it's like, it's just resources. You know, if you find, you know, if a middle prehistoric person found a paleo, uh, archaic site loaded with stone tools like mm-hmm. of course they would take those right yeah or yeah. set up camp there again yeah yeah. Right. yeah a good camp spot's a good camp spot yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know are you familiar with the, like the young and dryest impact theory that's kind of been huh. i don't know if we want to really get into the conversation of that but it's 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 dating humans back much further than previously thought in the north american continent sure What's your, do you have information? What's your, your take on how old, uh, this landscape inhabited, had inhabited humans on this? Uh, way older than generally thought. Yeah. I think because like that paradigm of like this intrepid family coming through Beringia and marching through this ice-free corridor, like following mammoths (laughs) down into Idaho or Montana, you know, it's like, sure, of course that happened. Yeah. Of course. But... Uh, there's sites along the coast of uh, Chile that are older. I mean, you think about the remarkable things that people did in a canoe and some stars, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they were like, they were traveling across the ocean. They might yeah. not have known it, you know, but they eventually landed somewhere and they're like, sweet, here's some land. Let's have kids. Let's have kids and eat some food. Yeah. You know? And then, <laughs> But the thing about all of the coastlines of North America, like during that ice age, like there would have been so much more coastline exposed. Mm-hmm. And then once the ice age ended, I, I feel like there's really, really old archaeological sites that are underwater along the coast of North America. That mm. would be helpful to knowing more of that story. But uh, some of those sites in South America, they just, in you know, I think people kind of poo-poo them because they're like, how could people have done that? Right, because they were tough, and they (laughs) like they just did. Yeah, they had to to survive. They had to. Yeah, Yeah. it's not it's not inconceivable to think that somebody got in a boat from New Guinea or Japan or China or whatever, and like you know found North America. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Homo erectus has been around for what is it like? Things date back three hundred fifty thousand years now. Like, what do you think? You know, and where you know, I think come from Homo erectus from what I understand, or is that just kind of separate? Uh, and, and then there was the, you know, cross mixing with like Neanderthal and stuff yeah. like that. But, you know, as far as the population of North America, it was generally kind of thought that it was around 13,000 years. I think 17, there's more, there's some data to suggest yeah. 17. I think just recently, 
even a couple of weeks ago, somebody sent me an article about uh, some human footprints that were uncovered in uh, White Sands oh, yeah. Park. Yeah, I saw that. That were super mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. They were kind of like originally refuted as like, well, they couldn't possibly be that old. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, you know, they pulled pollen grains out of the dirt and like they did a flotation analysis and like double, triple checked it. And it seems it seems mm-hmm. legit. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so this, uh, you know, this 13,000-year-old, uh, how much say this? This this date, this 13,000 years ago, kind of... Uh, before present. Before, but yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, so yeah, 13,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, not AD or not BC, no. so yeah. that'd be 13,000 BP. That's right, yeah, so before yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of coincides with the Younger Dryas Impact Theory, which is, I think it's from, uh, what's his name, um, Graham... Uh, what's his name? Let me look it up for a second. You're talking about like a climate model, like the altothermal and the hypsothermal and stuff like that. I'm not familiar with with that. <laughs> Just you know, like the little ice age, and like uh, there was times where it was super lush, and there was times where, you know, they I think they called it the Pinesdale glaciation. Hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, the altothermal and hypsothermal. Okay, I'll have just, to look that up. Are just uh, climate swings. Yeah. Yeah. So 12,800 years ago, I'll discuss for people who haven't listened to this yet um, on the Joe Rogan podcast, but I think his name's David, let's see, Impact Hypothesis. Let me just pull that up. Is it D-R-Y-E-S? Like, now that we're talking about the name, it's familiar. I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm going to look it up here. D-R-Y-E-S. With Graham Hancock. Yeah, his name is Graham and Randall Carlson. Yeah. So they, they went out to the uh, Eastern Washington um, and looked at, do you know that site, honey? Cause you no. went, yeah. In Cause Eastern you, Washington. well, so the, essentially their theory is that there was a comet 12,800 years ago that hit the North American ice sheet and caused catastrophic flooding throughout North America. And they found um, examples of this in central or Eastern Washington at the near the Cooley Dam, actually. Oh, at like the Dry Falls. Yeah, the Dry area. Falls area, and it's just this monumental flood that just carved out the. I think it's basalt that's over there, or some. Mm, it's some remember. sort of. The Columbia Plateau. Yeah, that yeah. hole in central eastern Washington, yeah. and which potentially destroy all the megafauna in North America, or most of the megafauna in North America. And you know, there's for yeah. a long time now, there's been the understanding that humans caused it caused the the extinction of mammoths and various other what are they called charismatic me- megafauna yeah but yeah charismatic. <laughs> it's so much charisma yeah right <laughs> but there's this theory and there's actually quite a bit of um research and data that's now pointing to this this theory there's a lot of people out there that still don't believe it and think it's just a speculative theory but they went, Reynold Carson and Graham Hancock went to the Dry Falls area, mm-hmm. and it's like this three-mile-wide chasm yeah. that just gets carved just straight through the bedrock. And it wasn't from the Missoula floods? Well, they, people claim that it would be from the Missoula floods, but the amount of water that would have needed to happen, it wouldn't have been in the Missoula, in Missoula Lake. So this is like kind of a... An alternate theory, I it's guess, alternate to the Great that, Lake Missoula. Yeah, and the theory, and like, yes, that potentially did rise and fall period of four or five times. But I they, think the initial breach of Glacier Lake Missoula is what made what's called the channeled scablands yeah, in that's eastern right. Washington. 
That's but, the theory, though. Yeah. But this is an alternative hypothesis yeah. for because they they looked at the actual hydrology and looked at how much water would have had to go through that flood from Missoula Lake, uh-huh. and it was it was it was a very minuscule amount to actually create those those scab yeah. lands. But specifically to Drive Falls, I mean, it's I don't know if you've been there. I haven't, but it's from the pictures. It's a huge area. Yeah. And so their idea, their hypothesis is that a comet hit back in the day, 12,800 years ago, caused all that that ice sheet to to melt within a period of three to four weeks. Yeah. And maybe all of these, these, uh, these stories of ancient past of the great flood might actually be true. I mean, Mm -hmm. either that or both. I mean, there's also the Bonneville flood when Lake Bonneville, which is now uh, Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that flood. There's uh, Mount Mazama. Where is that? Uh, Crater Lake, Oregon. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Basically, the entire top of that mountain exploded off at six thousand seven hundred years ago, and would have. I mean, there's Mazama ash here. There is, yeah. yeah. You can find it, and it's a good uh, temporal marker when we're doing stratigraphy. If you can find it, because it's it's an unknown six thousand seven hundred BP. But when you get more west of here. I mean, the ash deposits could be like feet thick, and like what that mm. did to the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine like that much like a powder day of volcanic ash, and then all that's going to go into rivers, and it's just going to you know, affect all the plants and like forage and everybody. But also provide uh, very fertile land. Yeah, yeah. Once it all kind of digests and washes yeah. away, but so we were talking with a, a local farmer here. Um probably a couple months ago now at our new property, but he was talking about when Mount St. Helens blew yeah. back in the early nineties. Right. And he said that there was like, what? I think, he said like, I think it was 83. Was it in the eighties? Yeah. There was something like six inches of ash in the Bitterroot Valley. Yeah. I remember I, I didn't when know. I was a kid, it was, it was uh, in Wyoming. I remember it was on the hood of our car. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. Cause on the East coast, I, did you No, no Well, you were I mean, alive. I was not. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even a thought yet. Yeah. But. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, 1983 it says May 18th, 1980. 80, 1980. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that must that must have felt cataclysmic. It was wild. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, what did that do to to the agriculture in that year or the next year? I don't know. I mean, that year I feel like it would have been detrimental because yeah. the plants, like if you imagine covering all your the greenery of your plants with soot. They can't mm-hmm. photosynthesize, and if the air is also, yeah. you know, if Occluding it's, it's light. Mm-hmm. and I'm, uh, there's got to be studies to that effect, especially in Oregon, like what it did to fish populations. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, well, yeah. for anybody out there who's listening that knows about these stories and, and kind of what happened in in the West Coast with respect to agriculture yeah. during yeah. the Mount St. Helens explosion, please reach out. We would for sure love yeah, to talk I'd be to curious you. Curious about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. I, uh, I remember that. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, cause I want to dive back into a few more <laughs> yeah, specifics yeah. about you, Brian. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of archeological stories I can ramble at, at length. So sweet. Well, back, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's, let's circle away from that a bit and I'm sure we'll come back to it, but you had mentioned something about, uh, with carving or that's uh, not the right word, but carving obsidian yeah. and cutting up your fingers and making that not good for being in yeah. a band or yes. playing music. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I play in a couple bands. I played a square dance just last night at a, oh, at nice. a wedding at uh, Teller Refuge for 
uh, Bess and Marty. She uh, had Southbound Flowers in Florence. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, great spot. Yeah. So I play in an old time string band called the Wood Hogs, and then I play in a band called the Bear Creek Boys. Tyler Decker and I. Um, we just kind of play all over the valley. Uh, it's really fun. We do some wacky tunes and a bunch of his originals. And uh, yeah, I started playing music when I got out of grad school. I used to go to bluegrass festivals, yeah. and you know, I'd see whoever was on stage. And I was like, oh, "This is great, whatever." And then I'd go out to the parking lot and see people playing there. Yeah, I was like, "Like, I was like, this is where it's at." I was like, "How are these people? How are all these strangers doing this together?" So like tight and like really good. Like, I mean, sure. Some of them probably knew each other, but you know, I'd, I'd watch people just like walk up and get out a mandolin or a fiddle or a guitar and just like join in. Yeah. And I just didn't know any of that vocabulary of music or just, so you like, didn't grow up with, with playing no, music. We barely even listened to music when I grew up. I mean, That's I played wild. the, I played the recorder in school, yeah. <laughs> you know, in grade school or whatever. And like, you know, we listened to John Denver and the Beatles and stuff, Yeah, you know, very infrequently. Like it wasn't just a, it wasn't a big thing in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what was the first instrument you picked up then? Uh, mandolin. Cool. So yeah, I'd see, you know, I'd see these jams in the parking lot. I was like, that's what I want to do. And someone had advised me to uh, mandolin because they're, it's tuned to perfect fifths. So there's a lot of patterns that hold true and it's same with the fiddle and same with the bass, just of how they're tuned. So, you know, but like a guitar, there's patterns, but like, you got to use a capo and there's, it's not tuned to fifth. So it's like, it's just more. And then, you know, banjos. Um, but so I picked up a mandolin. I bought like a really nice one. So I'd feel guilty if I didn't play it. um, (laughs) I just, you know, yourself. uh, I just kind of self-taught. Um, and then it was when I was living in Seattle at the time, there was a, there was a one credit night class at, um, uh, I forget the community. It was a community college night class called Bluegrass Ensemble. You know, 50 bucks, whatever. And it was like 10 weeks and you, you go and it was like some experienced people and I'm like, I didn't even know how to hold it, right? <laughs> you know? And so you'd kind of split into a band and you'd pick three songs, generally like really, really right down the middle, easy mm-hmm. bluegrass, traditional bluegrass songs and you'd take 10 weeks to work them out. And then you'd give a performance, Sweet. you know, mm-hmm. and, and then I just started playing with other people. I think I might've done that class twice. Uh, maybe, maybe just once, but, uh, so I kind of started playing with other people right away mm-hmm. and like, that was really supportive and, you know, you kind of pick up the chords and it's just like, like anything is practice, practice. And, uh, then I started to go to a summer camp. A music camp called the uh used to be called the british columbia bluegrass workshop mm-hmm. up in sorrento nice. british columbia i went there for 10 years probably it was like a week-long uh immersive like all day long whatever level whatever instrument uh class and then jams and open jams and student you know performances and instructor performances and you know, you're encouraged to like, you know, leave everything at home and just like be really present there for mm-hmm. the week. And, uh, I learned a lot there and then I just continued to play, continued to play, got into a couple of bands, um, and then just, just kept playing, kept playing. Yeah. That's awesome. There's, um, 
in Salmon Arm up there in BC, the Roots and Blues Festival. Yeah. Have you gone to that? Uh, it was always happening right as I was leaving okay. Sorrento usually. <laughs> and like, especially as I got being able to play better, like after a week at Sorrento, because you'd, you'd kind of be in class or whatever all day. Then you just like stay up all night. Yeah. Like drinking, smoking weed, playing music. Yeah. Like, just getting after it so after like six days of that you're just like you want a break done it's like the mere husk of yourself and you have to drive like 12 hours yeah you know? like back to done. reality there's yeah. uh in sorrento there's a really cool brewery too i took you there right jay that one like kind of out in the woods is it the, like, the guy wearing the kilt yeah yeah, Cranog yeah. brewing mm-hmm. yeah. was that there when i don't think it was there oh, okay know. yeah cool spot I... you can go tour their hops farm and hang out with the animals oh, and... nice. yeah i haven't gone to sorrento for a long time because I then I started to go to as I started to play I, I found bluegrass to kind of be have a lot of machismo and it was like I kind of started to get turned off by it and I gravitated more to old time string band stuff mm-hmm. which was kind of a more collective way to play and like uh, more supporting like really good fiddlers and I appreciated the history of both styles but um, I just started to play old time music more and so then I started to go to Weezer Idaho every June, which there's a gathering there, uh, Stickerville and this little place called Stickerville. It's loosely associated with the national old time fiddle contest. Hmm. Um, this is always right in the middle of field season. And so before (laughs) I worked for myself, I always had to like carve out that time. I even put it in my hire letter. I was like, (laughs) I don't care what's going on and this week, but I'm going to be gone. And invariably that week would come up and they'd be like, Oh, we got this project. I'm like, it's in, our, it's in the writing. Yeah, I can't. Uh, so it became increasingly hard to like protect the time of going to Sorrento and going to Weezer because mm-hmm. one was in June, one was in August. Mm-hmm. So I started to prioritize Weezer mm-hmm. and still do. I went yeah. there. Just, yeah, I've been going for uh, 16 or 17 years. Nice. Now. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. No relation to the 90s rock band? No relation. (laughs) (laughs) It's a funny little farm town west of Boise. They grow a ton of onions and a whole bunch of, uh, yeah, onions. Maybe some lentils. Maybe that's where we saw all those onions coming coming from from when we were in Boise. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Likely, yeah. It's like the onion capital of the West. Like a semi-truck load. Yeah. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. And potatoes. And potatoes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That whole central valley of, of Idaho, all the way from Oregon out to Driggs, really, yeah. kind of the end of it. It's a wild, wild place. Oh, man. I, I did an archaeology project west of Boise. Uh, I recorded the Homedale Municipal Airport. Okay. And so I have to do a lot of title work at courthouses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Owyhee County, and I went south of there because uh, their courthouse is in like this – I can't remember the town. There's like 40 people. <laughs> But and I was like, "Why is the courthouse here?" And they're like, "Well, it's because it's like centrally located from the northern and the southern part of the state, uh, harkening back to like the 1800s, because it was just like a centralized place." But yeah. it gets so remote so fast. Yeah, it's really wild. Uh, Idaho's a trip. Yeah. It is even with Boise there. Yeah, like Boise's its own marooned island. Yeah, in the sea of sagegrass. You go half an hour south of Boise, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, towards City of Rocks area. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, mm-hmm. we love to love down there. We love yeah. to go from from here down through Salmon into the Lemhi. Is that yeah. how you pronounce it right? Yeah. Lemhi Valley. Yeah. And seeing Diamond Peak and then through Idaho Falls yeah, to really the south. Cool and so much of that is BLM land. It's really mm-hmm. it's really accessible and it's crazy remote. Mm-hmm. I used to climb a bunch at Sea of the Rocks. I love that place. Yeah. We've still never been. No, we haven't. Yeah. We were going to go last weekend and then we opted for the Finns. Yeah, I've never been there. But... In Howe. When it's I lived at, when I lived in Ogden, when I went to Weber State, I climbed a lot, but I had a couple of accidents that uh, put a pin in that for a while, and then I never got back into it. Yeah, like sport climbing ropes, or yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, using traditional. We did a lot mm-hmm. of traditional stuff, but yeah, I uh, it came about an inch from just getting instantly killed by a huge falling slab of mm. limestone, and it and it kind of glanced off my back and just just wrecked my. It was just hamburgered my back then i was just doing like some bouldering in big cotton canyon and fell like two feet or a foot and it's like folded my ankle in half and (laughs) And then so it just took a while and then all my climbing gear got antiquated and i was like uh, do i spend five thousand more dollars yeah a bunch of quick like i had a whole like traditional rack and like all these quick draws and ropes and like you let that shit sit for a few years mm-hmm. and it's just it's toast. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to trust that no. with your life yeah. by yeah. any means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway. All right. So archaeology <laughs> and music and farming. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go down that road now. So yeah. you run your own archaeology business. Mm-hmm. You are part of two bands. Yeah. Two bands of both of which have absolutely zero online presence whatsoever. <laughs> I know you can uh, uh, hear them at uh, Blacksmith Brewing, downtown Stevensville. Yes, kind the, of on uh, a monthly basis, it seems. November 11th, the Bear Creek Boys will be at um, the Blacksmith Brewery. Then actually in two weeks, the Woodhogs are going to do a square dance at the Grange. Sweet. Oh, nice. And that's in Hamilton for anyone yeah. that's uh, out here in This Montana. will probably come out after that. But What's that? This will probably come out after that. Or before that? Oh, uh, probably. Uh, I think probably early next yeah, week. Yeah, we'll release well, it, it's so. the same night as the witches riot in Hamilton. So, Ooh. okay, <laughs> all the witches are welcome to come square dance. Is that where we find the witches? Yes, it's yeah. good. Uh, it's See a scare float. dance. Is a scare dance? A Halloween square dance. We've been yeah, doing yeah. it for years. It's fun. The only thing funnier than and more fun than watching people square dance is watching them do it in costume. That really, sounds super entertaining. I have a, it's really fun. I have a confession. I, I don't know how to square dance. Nobody does. Okay. We'll teach you. Sweet. We'll Only if you, you wear a costume. Yeah. Okay. We teach every song or every, every day. Just as a farmer. Excellent. Uh, Caroline Stevens from the Moon Randolph Homestead is the caller we work with a lot. She's really good. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Caller, you said? Yeah. What does that mean? She calls the dances. Oh. Tells you what to do. Oh. Yeah. Alamanny left, Dosi do et cetera. I've heard Dosey Do. Dosey does what? Yeah. What? I said Dosey does what? Dosey Do. Dive for the oyster, things like that. I have images in my head. We better better attend this year so we can uh, figure out what all this means. uh, So yeah, your farm. farm. Yeah. Tell Um, us, tell us about that. So when, when did you gain interest in farming? Yeah. Did you And when did you, yeah. When did you start your farm here in the Bitterroot Valley? Uh, Also had no farming whatsoever in my Mm -hmm. entire life until I moved here to Missoula, actually. So yeah. 2001, um, I had grown some things when I lived in Seattle. I, I'd always had like a meager little futzy garden, but I didn't know much about it. And then when I moved to Missoula, I got a community garden plot and started to put more effort into it. Um, and this coincided with me becoming a better cook. Uh, I had friends that were chefs, and I learned a lot from them and just 
like realize that being in control of your ingredients like can lead to more uh satisfying cooking experiences mm-hmm. maybe and uh started uh had a community garden plot on the north side in Missoula for years um and that's when Jen and I got together she had had a plot there too and then we uh ultimately worked our way up to being like mentors at that garden for mm-hmm. new people and um just had big plots and like grew our own food but always kind of grew way too much and yeah. we're like oh, what do we do with this excess and like you know we're pretty good at this we're pretty good at this we're not good at this part and kind of picked our things and then as you know i loved living in missoula but it it ran its course mm-hmm. over a certain point and uh i think we moved and that's about the time too when i started my own archaeological company and then that gave the freedom to come down here and look for a farm. We looked for a property for about a year. Um, and then Jen and I ended up finding this place where we're at now. Uh, it used to be owned by um, the Plesners, who were some of the original Lifeline Produce uh, members in the 70s oh, cool. when they first got started. And so they worked uh, with Steve and Lucy and Ernie through the seventies. And then they kind of left the farm, but just like basically moved up the road and they had been at this place for about 30 years. It had good, good outbuildings. It didn't have any developed plots or anything. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but we liked the outbuildings. It's got a great view. We have good water, pretty good water. Um, but, uh, so we bought that place, uh, took a couple acres. We bought a 19, 19- 49 in tractor on the other side of the valley. Mm-hmm. I drove that thing from Illinois bench to our place <laughs> over the course of a few hours. And then yeah, right. our neighbor had a double bottom plow sitting in his field. And I went and asked him about it. He's like, Oh, that was made for a nine in a uh, hundred bucks. I was like, sweet. Sure. And so we strapped that thing on and flipped a couple of acres on its head of just like this beat up trashed old pasture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was the pleasures had run sheep. Uh, it was just like compacted and just, you know, and so we started off with, uh, potatoes and garlic and things that would like kind of just bigger root crops to help break that stuff up. Mm-hmm. And then I just been amending and amending and amending and, um, finally have some pretty good plots now. We haven't done a soil test for a while, which we probably should, but, mm-hmm. um, but then kind of realized too that there's so many great farmers in this valley like y'all that that grow a lot of things really well and we never really aspired to be at a scale at a big scale like we wanted to kind of be able to keep it manageable for just the two of us and you know we didn't want to like grow things that everyone else is already growing really well yeah you know i mean we grow some of those things like carrots and lettuce and things just for our own personal mm-hmm. But as far as marketable items, we kind of early on latched on to things that were underrepresented mm-hmm. and trying to do those. And then like what, for example, uh, like ice, heads of iceberg, um, we got a coffer lime tree and like we sell those leaves. Uh, we grow a really specific type of potato that I don't know that anyone else grows in the valley. Uh, this year we started to grow a whole bunch of uh, Delfino cilantro, which mm-hmm. was a new crop to us, but it worked great. And we were able to move the whole crop to a restaurant. Awesome. Um, and 
I don't know, just just varietals of things that like kind of set them apart from what you'd normally see in a market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think somebody told me it might have been you guys. Like like there's like 17 kind of main crops, right? Like that you would always see at a at a bigger farm. You know, there's a certain amount of things that are replicated, and then mm-hmm. it's up to you to, to find the grower that you like that grows them good to your satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, deliciously. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's that's interesting. You have certainly, I would say, a pretty different model than a lot of young farmers or just people in general that are getting into growing and farming. Because I think it really is easy to kind of get into that mindset of, okay, what are the main crops that everybody wants? Mm-hmm. And I know in our first year, we spent some time trying to experiment and grew zebra tomatoes that were so beautiful and green and all these different varieties of things the striped eggplants and then we went to the farmer's market with them and people were like oh where are the red tomatoes yeah where's the where's the iceberg lettuce where's the like they just wanted the very classics and for us trying to grow at a scale where we can sell really at that point strictly through the farmer's market and try to sell out we're like oh man people here don't want these creative and unique varieties. They want the basics. And we had to shift away from experimenting with some really cool varieties to cater to that market a little bit more. And you kind of went for the opposite approach, which is super cool that it's worked for you guys. Yeah. And I I mean, we do the O'Hara Wednesday Mm -hmm. market every other week. Uh, And, you know, we move, it's more just have a presence. Like we saw a lot of pork cuts mm-hmm. there and then we sell some flowers but um i think you know having these small scale kind of one-off specialty crops where we have some relationships with some chefs in the valley where mm-hmm. they'll they'll be like we'll take the whole crop mm-hmm. it kind of doesn't matter we trust you and then but it's still a small enough scale where they basically run a weekend special out of it and that's it mm-hmm. right you know so like we can move our whole crop of uh this type of potato that we grow Instead of schlepping them back and forth to the market every two weeks, um, we can just hand them all off to a restaurant and they're different than other potatoes. And yeah. so they can, yeah, run it as a special or do yeah. something different with them. And yeah. and then we're like done, done. The crops done. And, you know, it's uh, it's a better way to move things. But we, I, I like doing the market just from the social aspect and yeah. like kind of meeting people and talking about what we do because the other side of it is the flowers, which mm-hmm. Jen is mostly in charge of. And we've really upped that this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got into the NRCS high tunnel program, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll build a 30 by 70 by next spring that we'll probably do more flowers in. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other side then is the, uh, the pork and the meat goats, mm-hmm. uh, which we had great success with. Yeah, so you're you're raising Mangalitsa yes. pigs, right? Yeah. And so can you describe to our listeners what that breed of pig is and why it's so important? Uh, it's an old, it's like a heritage pig from Hungary. Uh, they're very fatty. The meat is exceedingly marbled and it's very red. Um, the fat is sweeter. It renders quicker. It's got a higher smoke point. It's just... Milk white. What's that? It's milk white. Milk white. It's yeah. like uh, it's one of my favorite ath- w- products from these animals. So it's delicious. Like, it's so yeah. It's so good. It's so good. And uh, we originally, you know, we had all these, we had all this land, and we didn't really have animals yet. And um, Jen was like, "Oh, we should, you know, get some pigs just so we could have pork." And 
you know, so like look on Craigslist and there's these three Mangalisa pigs and then I Googled those and I was like, oh shit, those look delicious. Cause like <laughs> pretty much everything we do is in pursuit of like deliciousness and flavors. Yeah. Like some of the seed companies we work with and it's just all, it's just all about like delicious food, right? Yeah. As it should be. And so we saw these pigs we bought three of them and then the guy we bought them from kind of joked. He's like, oh, well the, the one was in with the boar for a while. So, you know, haha, she might be pregnant. And then <laughs> sure enough, like a month later, all of a sudden we have like eight pigs. <laughs> like what the fuck am I going to do with all these pigs? <laughs> and like, you know, we had some help. Uh, Jen Holmes, who used to be down at Lifeline Dairy, helped us out a lot. And with that, when they were really young and just kind of helping us through that process, especially when they were being born, I was like, yeah, I've never done this before. And yeah. You know, there's only so much that YouTube can teach you until you can get somebody that's right. like practical that can help you. But what did uh, she do to help you? Just, you know, like, uh, advising on like feed and just like as they're being born and like, you know, oh, they need a heat lamp here and just like, but don't burn your barn down and put it <laughs> here. And, uh, I mean, YouTube has been helpful in like helping fix the tractor and stuff like that, but like the practical animal side, mm. it's more just like getting your hands dirty. Yep. And now we've been doing it for eight years and we found a pretty quick market for this pork, pretty mm -hmm. high end. Um, and again, pitched it to chefs or people that knew what it was that were here in the Valley. And they're like, Oh, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. I'll, yeah. Yeah. I'll buy that. And same thing with the goats. We got a breed that were specific to meat. And not just like people eating like an old dairy goat, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's like, which whatever, but, uh, our specific goats are, are just for meat and we have a good market. We have a, we can move as many of them as we want. Mm -hmm. So how did you, cause you're all right. So how did you create these markets for yourself? Cause you're, you're now for lack of better words, tailoring to with higher end products to higher end markets. So yeah. how did you navigate that and figure out how to develop those markets? Yeah, especially in a smaller valley. Yeah. Uh, just relationships. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. People, I don't know, just, uh, just building relationships with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just... It's pretty, yeah, pretty much That's just pretty that. Much just, uh, Did you take people's samples or like? No. And yeah. people would be like, what's your cut list? I'm like, uh, what? And, you know, <laughs> like originally I was like, we didn't, we didn't know how to price anything. And like, yeah. we didn't, you know, it's like, Jesus. But like, even still now, like we go to the market or when we just did that farm to fork yeah. thing with the bike, the bike mm -hmm. tour, I'd like realize like there's no sign at our place. Like there, there was like no way to be like, Hey, you're at Verdure Pastures. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, we have the farm stand, but it's just blank. Like there's yeah. no sign. So we're still, we, it's just like the music, like it's just kind of word of mouth. Like yeah. we're not super great at marketing. We're our Instagram presence is pretty good, but mm -hmm. like even when we go to the market, like I don't have signage, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. still nobody knows who we are. Yeah, but, but people know you. Yeah, but, but, but that's the thing. It's like word of mouth, and we've we've developed a reputation, and we've built a brand. And mm -hmm. even though that brand might be invisible, <laughs> it's still, <laughs> it's still uh, there. And like yeah. we we have some great relationships with people we do flowers with now, and it's just kind of maintaining those. But mm -hmm. uh, originally, how did the pork? We we got somebody. Somebody saw that we had it at the O'Hare market. And she was like, oh, I should buy some of these pork chops. I have a chef friend 
that would like these. And so she took them to the chef, and then he emailed me like two days later. He's like, "This is the best pork I've ever had." Awesome. Like, give me a call. I yeah. was like, okay. And then that, you know, we were able to move several animals, and then, and then uh, just friends and just old relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just being gregarious. Mm-hmm. And so then, did you? in time like build up the quantity of pigs that you were going to raise each year based on what you knew you were going to sell yeah we definitely had a list for pork like kind Mm -hmm. of a waiting list and like we kind of peaked last year we we sold 17 pigs this year Mm -hmm. uh and well maybe two two or three of those we put into the farm stand Mm -hmm. um or we'll sell it through the o'hara online market okay which uh starts today again um which we were able to move things through really well over the That's winter awesome. months. It was really great. Uh, the farm stand does a brisk business on that side, also with the flowers and then, you know, other quirky things we put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yes, we, we had the most pigs we've ever had recently, and now we're down to nine. We had two sows that were supposed to give birth but didn't, and so I could have... Mm. Because we buy pregnant sows instead mm-hmm. of keeping a boar because it's easier than trying to keep a boar separate all the time. Because okay. really after one generation, that boar is kind of irrelevant because then you're just inbreeding anyway. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, But instead of rectifying that, we're just going to pump the brakes over the winter yeah. and then get two pregnant sows in the spring. And then okay. we'll start breeding, breeding the goats again in the spring. So we're kind of at the lowest numbers on both herds, which is really fine. Yeah, gives you a break. Yeah, like currently the pigs have destroyed the entire electric fence system that I need to rebuild probably tomorrow. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and and plus the carrying capacity of the acres I have the pigs on is was almost exceeded with that amount. Okay. Uh, we do rotational grazing, but we really need to get a better system for reseeding. Mm-hmm. Like it's probably going to be like some kind of no-till implement mm-hmm. that uh, – that we need to get so we can reseed things more efficiently. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I reseeded one pasture this year and just turned into lamb's quarter. Like oh, nothing really? but. And it was like none of the seeds we broadcast seeded. Took. Interesting. Yeah. How, yeah. how many acres are you guys working with for where you're rotating? We have 10. Uh, okay. The pigs are on about three. Mm-hmm. Goats are on about four. There's probably one, one and a half that's in flowers. Mm-hmm. Then the rest is just, you know, uh, another pasture we keep bees too uh the orchard's probably half an acre okay yeah Yeah. so you're kind of reaching your capacity with the space you have yeah 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 it'll be good to take have a lower amount of animals this winter just from a feeding perspective yeah yeah hey cheap Mm -mm. (laughs) no No, not these days that's for sure yeah um, so the Mangalisa pigs, those were, were those originally bred for lard? They were lard pigs. Is that right? They're called lard pigs. They were, uh, kind of on the, they're from Hungary and they're kind of on the verge of extinction at one point. I yeah. know there's a, there's a breed of them that's, uh, white. I think those are gone. And then we have the black and white ones are called swallow belly. And then we also have some red ones, which, uh, are totally insane. There's really, they behave really differently Do than they? the swallow belly ones. Yeah. In what ways? Uh, they're just like constant teenagers. Like anytime, I'm pretty sure the electric fence disruption was entirely at their hands. I've, they, I saw one of them jump a gate, like a three foot gate, he, like climbed up and over it. 
It's like, wow, you're not supposed to be able to do that. And those darn redheads. Yeah, those fucking redheads, man. They're, <laughs> but yeah, they're just constant mayhem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are they beggars? Really just like... Personality. Yeah, yeah. personality. And we, you know, we love all of our animals and we care for them and we give them the best life. And, you know, we have an old livestock guardian dog that's that's whining out her days with the goats and yeah. everybody's happy and well fed. But, you know, sometimes people ask me if I'm sad when they go to the butcher and I'm like, eh, no. Nah. Nope. No. Nope. Not when they come back as pork chops. Yeah. I mean, like we love them, but like we don't, you know, yeah, we, we love them and we give them a good life. You can love your food when it's alive. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's yep. okay. And sure. you can feel bad when you kill something. Sure. If you didn't, I might question you a little bit. Yeah. You might be a little psychopathic if yeah. you don't have some sort of sentiment for when this animal passes yeah. his life on to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, we, like, there's a process, you know, like, mm-hmm. I always say thank you and say goodbye. And, yeah. you know, but, like, I, we don't coddle them or give them names and, you know, mm-hmm. give them preferred treatment over others. They're just, right. like, uh, they're just, uh, part of our food system mm-hmm. yeah but yeah i mean i never want to see them injured we doctor them we take care of them but mm-hmm. like i don't uh i don't we don't anthropomorphize them we don't you know assign personalities to them beyond what they have yeah um they're smart they're clever um they can be fun ish i suppose entertaining yeah uh when the pigs, like when a whole herd of pigs gets the zoomies, it's pretty, pretty <laughs> fucking funny. <laughs> uh, but uh, we respect them as part of our food system. Yeah. yeah. And there's a process that we say goodbye to them, but it's not, uh, you know, it's just part of our system. Yeah. I think that's really important, too, because, I mean, there are so many people that have interest in trying to raise their own animals and I hear a lot of people that say I just don't know if I could because they worry about the potential attachment and I do think it's important to define your I guess define their place like you said define their place in your food system and see them as like any other crop that you're raising and that it is just this other source of food for you for your community uh, to enjoy yeah, I mean, I, I don't get the chance to do this with the pigs, but whenever I mm-hmm. shoot an antelope or an elk or a deer, I always uh, get a bundle of grass and put it in its mouth, mm-hmm. you know? Where where does that tradition come from? Is that... Because I've I, heard that, but... I learned it from this great chef. Uh, I follow Hank Shaw. Okay. Uh, is where I, I had learned that from. Is he the hunter chef? Yeah, hunt, gather, cook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of respect for that guy, and his culinary skills are really great and uh he has a lot of wonderful recipes but i I like his philosophy about hunting and gathering things it's not overly pretentious it's very just right down the middle and it's like here's why i collect mushrooms here's why i get these plants it's not he's not all like you know he's not trying to be an influencer or anything he's just a chef he's like check out what i got yeah Yeah. and here's how i'm gonna cook it yeah yeah here's how you can cook it yeah and it's fucking delicious that's great (laughs) yeah but uh but i remember him once it was a long time ago i saw something that he did i was like because i always you know i always kind of just put your hand on him and say Mm -hmm. thanks and stuff but um that kind of i don't know little bite for the afterlife Mm -hmm. made a lot get connected with me Mm -hmm. and if i had the chance to do that with our other animals I, i would but 
you know, we use various butchers mm-hmm. in town. We just, we just don't get to be part of that process. So yeah, the USDA would think otherwise. Yeah, they'd be like, "What are you doing? Yeah, you yeah. want to sell this? Yeah. Uh-uh. yeah, is that grass clean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like it's grass. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, um. So we, for Jay and I, as farmers, we go through this constant battle of what is too much on our farm both in terms of like the variety of things that we're trying to produce and where we're distributing our time. And then of course, with also having our restaurant and yeah. trying to do this podcast, Amazing restaurant, by the way, thank you. <laughs> and trying to do the podcast on the side. I'm curious if for you and for Jen also, do you guys find yourselves feeling stretched thin with the animals, the flowers, the specialty crops, the archeology span and Jen, does she have a, um, a preschool. She uh, the she uh, worked at Lifeline Creamery for many years, and now yeah. is going to help run the food program at Evergreen Preschool. Okay, okay. So for you guys trying to balance all that, how does that feel? And with Clancy, yeah, yeah, and uh, with the child, yeah, the child, <laughs> Clancy. Uh, it's we keep things manageable. Mm-hmm. I mean, she tends to do a lot of the flower work, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not super patient and like weeding things but she she loves it so i'm like cool you can do that so division of labor like Mm -hmm. i tend to take care of infrastructure and fencing and drip lines and water Mm -hmm. and kind of physical infrastructure i have a couple crops that i tend to baby more Mm -hmm. than she does like i really i'm a big fan of utilitarian single harvest things that don't need a lot of uh work but i'll i'll kind of baby them through like garlic and potatoes and shallots and onions and things like that. Um, but she mostly does the flowers. I mostly do the animals. And then um, the bees kind of do their own thing. The orchard's fine. Uh, I balance my... Because I'm on my own now, archaeologically, I can control the scale and the pace mm-hmm. of the projects I get. I've never been like a yes man. And when Mm -hmm. I was at that bigger company, like that was kind of what was expected. It was, you'd always say yes to the client, do whatever they're asking. And like, sometimes like that doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised if you're like, if you do a counter proposal and they'll be like, Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. You know, but I, I understand there's like urgency to some things and like I fit in what I can, but you know, in the world where we live in now with an iPhone, I can, you know, there's a little spot on chair four, like between like tower six and eight, where I can like answer an email, pretend <laughs> like, at, pretend at like I'm in my office and or lost trail, lost, lost trail, trail. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 um, or <laughs> like be doing farm work and answering archaeological, dealing with archaeological mm-hmm. emails and stuff, like while I'm harvesting garlic or yeah. something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, I kind of do two things at once a lot, mm-hmm. but um, in a manageable way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Do you have any specific advice for people? So what I've seen a lot in this community, especially, is a lot of people trying to get into farming that can't quite disconnect from their old career yeah. and needing to hang on to it. But then because of that, they can't find that balance. Like it sounds like you maybe have where they can do a bit of their old career with the farming so that the farming can actually take off. Do you have any advice for people on how to maybe find better balance it's really helpful that I work for myself. Yeah. Like I don't have to ask anyone about anything. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, can I take the day off? Cause we need mm-hmm. to plant garlic or right. my son's sick or it's a huge powder day or I need to go hunting or like, 
I don't have to ask anyone about that. So I can just do it. And then I manage the time myself mm-hmm. and get the, you know, like, as we all know, farming, like the, to, the to-do list is insane. And like, you know, we haven't even prepped our garlic beds yet. Like we just <laughs> ordered tulips. I don't even know if we've actually ordered them yet. And, uh, so we're behind in some ways, but like always, it's just like part of farming. Like mm-hmm. I just did a fencing task, uh, the other day that was on the list from when we moved in. <laughs> and I was like, how many Fuck. years ago was that? <laughs> yeah. Eight years. I was like, I was looking at this one section. I was like, God damn it. I'm going to do that thing now. And yeah. that's going to feel really good. Yeah. But, I, it's hard. I don't know. I, my advice would be like, uh, work for yourself. <laughs> it's, just, it's hard, man. Cause if you're beholden to a rigid job schedule, mm-hmm. it's really hard. And, yeah. Uh, I can only do this because I work for myself. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like archeology, span like does one take priority over the other? Archeology span because it, it pays most of everything. Cause mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've been doing it since, basically 1992 Mm -hmm. been doing archaeology so i've gotten to the point now where i own my own company and have for a while and uh i've gotten to the point where it's profitable yeah um so i can make the the archaeology pays for a lot and then the we've gotten to a point in the farm where the pigs uh are kind of making the profit from the pigs is making the farm kind of be like a closed loop mm-hmm. financially where mm-hmm. the farm pays for itself. So yeah. we don't really have to out of pocket a lot of archaeological resources yeah. or Jen's resources right. into the farm yeah. anymore. We sure as hell did at the start. Yeah, that makes sense. And we're still carrying a lot of that debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, the the pigs made a couple mortgage payments this year. Yeah. It was like... I took as a awesome. huge win. Yeah. You know, for sure. It's not going to happen again for a couple of years, yeah. but yeah. You know, yeah. So I'll would you, it. uh, I imagine there's probably for you, you wouldn't leave behind your career of archeology span and dive full on into farming. No, no, no way. No. no. And is that just the financials <laughs> or because you do also have that passion I, for the archeology? span I have a passion for it. And yeah. like, I mean, it, it, um, it, I just love it, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's a 8,000 year old dart point that I'm holding in my hand that nobody's touched for 8,000 years or yeah. some, you know, getting access to like, uh, I just did a historic dam south of Butte and like, I got to like traipse all over the dam. Yeah. Like, nobody gets to do that. You yeah. Know? I worked uh, in my early part of my career when I was still at Weber State, I, uh, was part of a crew that did a bunch of archeology span out on a big weapons testing range. I was like 19 and like, you know, living in a secret compound yeah. on the, on the UTTR called Oasis compound. And like, just run around this testing range and finding 10,000 year old sites next to like exploded F-16s and live white phosphorus grenades and bombs and missiles. And just like, is crazy. that in the snake Valley South of Wendover? No, but I've been there too. Oh, yeah. uh, this is the UTTR. So it's basically Wendover East. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a million acre aerial gunnery range yeah and so it's huge you know like just uh being out there and having those experiences and seeing those archaeological resources or just like anywhere other dams and other rivers and just like being in places archaeologically that i wouldn't really be as a tourist or as a visitor yeah that makes sense like Yeah, yeah yeah i wouldn't trade that for anything I mean, mm-hmm. and I still want to control 
the scale. I have a lot of projects right now, but I mean, the Bozeman International Airport. I was like, cool, yeah. You know, I, I have when I have a TSA escort, I get to like walk around the runways and sweet. Like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. that sounds fun. Well, like, you get having... to do that. Yeah, yeah. right. And then you don't or, have to travel uh, far. Or just like uh, this will be my third year on this water pipeline out along the Muscle Shell River, and like, like getting to know an insanely remote landscape really well is very rewarding. I mean, cause we're like, you know, we're working anywhere between Harlowtown and Roundup middle of nowhere along mm-hmm. the North end of those counties, like 20 or 30 miles North of the highway on just old dirt roads. And like, we're, you know, six or seven mile stretches of roadless area. Uh, it's just, you know, there's nobody there. Yeah. Like people hunt antelope there and stuff, but, for the most part, like it's like a 1920s time capsule, some mm-hmm. of those old farmsteads. And so, yeah, I mean, I love farming. I love uh, providing people the chance to have delicious things in their lives. Uh, but I really like what I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, you know, farming too is just a way to kill time between ski seasons so uh, <laughs> i i like to have the freedom to do that as much as i can in the winter yeah, yeah. So. yeah. well we'll see you up there at lost trail this winter oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and i think that's maybe good advice to pass on to people in the farming world is to find a way to take that time because we see a lot of burnout in the farming world and a lot of farmers that don't really try to take any time off in the winter or throughout the season. Yeah. I've noticed, you guys are good about that. And, and mm-hmm. I really admire people like yourselves that like do it on a scale where it's like, I know you guys have the cafe now and that probably mm-hmm. is super helpful as a way to like either funnel crops through it or mm-hmm. like as a extra revenue source. But, yeah. uh, you know, other friends of ours in the Valley where it's like, it's their main 24 seven income. Mm-hmm. Like I have a lot of respect for those people cause that's a lot of fucking work. And, totally. and you know, I, yeah, kudos. Yeah, it's absolutely. Just, it's just not something. I mean, and I, you know, I, I go back and forth. I'm like, so am I just like a hobby farmer? Like, you know, and then I'm like, no, because we're you know providing like legit, like yeah. niche products, and mm-hmm. it's just because I don't want to do a CSA. It doesn't mean, you know, we just we're comfortable at the scale that we're at. Yeah, yeah. which is a super important message too, because mm-hmm. that's for ourselves and other farms in the community. We've seen. We've seen ourselves try to grow too fast or to diversify too fast. And I've seen other farms try to do the same. And it just like, it takes a toll on you mentally, (laughs) emotionally, physically, all of it. Um, You okay? Loki takes a toll on her too. (laughs) Our dog's just laying belly up on the couch right now. Um, Oh. (laughs) (laughs) um, Oh, no, I lost my train of thought. Uh what we're talking about. <laughs> Grow too fast. <laughs> yeah. Too much. yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, I do think it's important to kind of hone in on like for you, for you, Brian, like what you're actually passionate about and what you enjoy growing to serve to the community, like your specialty animals. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's what I was getting at is that <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> it's a good message for people that maybe want to dabble in a career in farming is that it doesn't necessarily have to be 20 acres of like super intensive crop production like find something that you really care about yeah and do a really good job 
at that thing. And that's why uh, Jen is so good at the flowers. Like she has a long history in like wanting to do that and floral floral arrangement. She's really good at it. Mm. Like she, you know, there's times where she'll go out of town and like we have like a weekly amount of bouquets that we put into businesses in Hamilton and mm-hmm. like I'll have to make those bouquets and like you know they're you know they're fine, but the, they're <laughs> not flowers. The, they're, they're not the way that she makes them. She yeah. makes really nice products and then. uh we're all about like value added stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. So like everyone grows garlic. We also grow garlic, but like we tend to like sell garlic powder, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't. And then Jen's really good about, you know, harnessing the flowers that can be dried and she's really good at making uh, wreaths mm-hmm. and we're able to move those through O'Hara and the farm stand and, you know, various, like we will do some pop-ups and things like that, but um, not a ton. Uh but she, uh, yeah, she, she does all the heavy lifting on the flowers. And she's really great at mm-hmm. it. And or were you about to you say something? Go for it. Um, in terms of value-added products, we wanted to touch base on that with you because that's a big part of our model at yeah. the Sourdough Cafe. Also, we saw really early on and as part of our initial vision of taking the crops we grow that are, you know, kind of the misfits, things that people don't want to buy because they're blemished or chewed mm-hmm. and turning it into something that we can then sell for honestly, even more than people would pay, like a bunch of cilantro, for example, that's gone a bit wilty or was hit with hail. We turned it into pesto that we could charge a lot more for and that a customer sees a lot more appeal in than just buying a bunch of cilantro and having mm-hmm. to do it themselves. Because people don't want to make pesto. They yeah. want to buy and eat it. Yeah, yeah, totally. In general. And so we like seeing other farms that are going along with that sort of model too and see that value. But what other value-added products have you guys... Uh, shreddies. The shreddies. Yeah, <laughs> we took all of our blemished potatoes and uh, turned them into hash browns. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. We can't keep them in the farm stand. Yeah, I think they're all gone again. Yeah, I might be able to do one more round. And then we just pulled a whole row of carrots that were like massive, and like we just don't have, we don't eat them enough, and like they tend, they don't sell through the farm stand. So I shredded those and froze them. So you Great. can buy. You know, who wants to make some carrot cake in January? Here's yeah. a bag of, like, yeah. shredded carrots. ready for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or uh, we went on a kick. The, the garlic powder is great. We tried – I'd like to do onion powder, mm-hmm. but we haven't quite figured out how to do that well. <coughs> uh, excuse me. I did uh, jalapeno powder one year. Oh, How did that work out? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what With seed? Oyster mushrooms. Yeah. Like, uh, forage those. Uh, oyster mushroom powder is so good. For oh, like I a, bet. A, like a sauce or a gravy or something. Give it that umami kind of flavor. Yeah, yeah even just make, making a quick mushroom stock because it would yeah. be super quick to yeah. make a stock I mean, not that we would sell that, but, like, just, mm-hmm. you know, taking things and, like, you know, drying them and turning them into a powder. Yeah. Totally. It's super simple. And yeah. I had somebody tell me once, like, oh, how do you make garlic powder? Like... <laughs> You know, it's like two steps. Fair question. <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Right. Yeah. When people are used to only ever seeing it in a jar at the store. <laughs> uh, t- you know, take all the cloves out, shred them, put it on parchment paper in the oven. Dry them. Dry them. Pulverize it. Yeah. We, yeah. we do it in a blender so it kind of vaporizes it really fast. Yeah. But it's really like the heavy lifting is getting the cloves out, mm-hmm. like a lot of them. Yeah. And then, yeah, just shred them in the Cuisinart, put it on parchment in the yeah. oven until it's crispy and let it cool and then just vaporize it in a blender and yeah. 
it's not the same garlic powder as you would find in the grocery store. No. It's very different. Yeah. yeah it's like a hint of roastedness to it mm-hmm. because we're not doing it in a dehydrator, but mm-hmm. I think that imparts a great flavor. I was yeah. going to say, it sounds yeah. delicious. And the consistency is a little different too. Would you would you agree with that? Or? Uh, it. Because there's usually stabilizing agents in that garlic powder. Probably so, powder. yeah. 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 The, uh, and we have a blend tech blender, super, super fancy blender. I got once after I hit the 50-50 at a baseball game in Missoula. Nice. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to buy a blender. <laughs> like a really nice one. And we've had it for years. But yeah, it just, it just vaporizes things. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. And so do you find that people are willing to pay more for a product in that alternate form i think so because it's you know it's a novelty or it's a Mm -hmm. niche thing that they're like oh i haven't seen this before Mm -hmm. and people that like have you know people that are like i don't know like uh recognize that as a a good product like they you know that's the person we're getting to and maybe some random people or you know be like curious but sometimes people that like maybe that's what they're looking for but nobody has it and then, mm-hmm. you know, we're like, here it is. I'm like, oh, it's great. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause value added products, the reason why there's added value to them is because there's extra labor, labor that's put into it to create the product. Right. Right. So we're not just dealing, we're not just selling the raw commodity product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we're not selling potato, you're selling the shreddies. And it's the lard want. too, you know I mean? Like, yeah. We have an insane amount of pork fat and it's, it's a process to make the lard. It's not complicated, but mm-hmm. you it know, takes I, time cut, I cut it up and then I refreeze it and then I grind it frozen through little cubes and then it renders itself in a big stock pot and then mm-hmm. i gotta filter that and jar it and yeah freeze it and... and for the for the common cook at home like they probably aren't gonna deal with that and and spend right. the Gosh. time creating yeah. rendered lard right because yeah. they'll probably burn it the first time and yeah. be like well this is a waste of time i'll yep. just buy it from brian yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i so, just had someone call me today actually on the way here that was looking for some unrendered kidney fat from our pigs because they they use the unrendered as suet and like a plum pudding around Christmas. Oh, interesting! Yeah. I was like, yeah, I got you covered. Nice. Yeah. She, she was like, well, how about we trade for some, you know, some plum pudding? I was like, okay, <laughs> fair that's enough. That's so great. great. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. 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 How cool that people can call you up to yeah. for those kind of specialty items that you're not going to find at any store here. Honestly, maybe not at the butcher shops even yeah um yeah that's super cool yeah so for for the near far future for the farm do you have any projects that are coming in the pipeline or just trying to kind of stay stay the course and make it Uh, more efficient we've got the 30 by 70 high tunnel yep by next spring we were going to do the footings this winter but we might just do it all in the spring Mm -hmm. yeah um uh, we might tarp an area now so at least we can work that ground a little bit Mm -hmm. prep the ground like what you guys just did at your new spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, animals will be status quo over the winter, although we'll probably butcher two midwinter. Mm-hmm. We'll probably run one through the farm stand and see what happens to the other one. And then piglets again in the spring where those take a year and a half plus. So we might be mm-hmm. fairly sold out of pork for a little bit, but yeah, uh, we've found that to be okay. Mm-hmm. Crazy just because the customer base we have or like realize that it takes a while for them to be yeah. properly finished. Uh, the goats will breed again and we can maybe move a couple of those, but uh, no, just status quo, but maybe a little bit bigger scale. Maybe do uh, we'll do that Delfino cilantro for our buddies at the Camino. Mm-hmm. We'll probably do 
that in the high tunnel on a big succession scale so we yeah. can kind of move through that a bunch but yeah. it's it's really easy mm-hmm. to grow and if we cut it back and keep planting it a lot that'll be a good restaurant crop um nice and then just keep keep working with flowers mm-hmm. and so remind listeners in the valley here when you're playing next so you're playing at blacksmith on blacksmith november 11th with the bear creek boys uh wood hogs halloween scare dance square dance at the grange in hamilton in hamilton just south which, of town. uh rocky mountain grange 116 um on the board it's not really board i'm the chaplain of all things there but uh mm-hmm. I'm part of the internal organization, and we've been working really hard to revitalize uh, the Rocky Mountain Grange. We yeah. just started our Potlucks with Purpose program, which will go through April, I think, where a musical act uh, performs, and then that night is in benefit of a nonprofit, uh, where I think they get like 70% of the take, Okay, and they pay the band, and the rest goes to the Grange, but we've been really trying to get the Grange back to where it it was as far as supporting community and supporting farmers and mm-hmm. being kind of an agricultural and community center. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done a really good job, but, uh, the Bear Creek boys will play there in December, uh, partnered with evergreen preschool. Yep. Cool. And we'll probably have you or hope to have you back on and talk a little bit more about the Grange and yeah. the happenings there. But, yeah. uh, when are, when is that square dance again? Uh, come? the 28th, the same day as the witches ride in Hamilton. So, okay. uh, so Saturday. Saturday, October yeah. 28th. Yep. Seven till nine, but we might push it seven till ten. Okay. Yeah. And where can people find you? Um, Verder Pastures on Instagram. On, on Instagram, Verder Pastures at Instagram. Uh, we have a fairly antiquated website um, that I need to add some pictures to you, but it, yeah. it kind of spells it all out. Although we do not grow grapes anymore. <laughs> but uh, we'll try that again, maybe. I always thought like a good crisp table grape crap would be another fun little specialty thing totally uh not necessarily just like concords or whatever but like yeah you know some good you should talk to mike duda about that yeah well no I, oh, yeah, you his, know yeah 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 i remember i went to that greenhouse once and i was like oh man <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> yeah. a lot of grapes it's cool uh so yeah main main way to contact you if they want pork and any uh, other products it, is through through instagram yeah instagram uh there is a there is a contact us through our website which okay. is just very pastures.com Perfect. That's actually how I got contacted about the the plum pudding suet mm-hmm. that they wanted. <laughs> um, and and for, then, if anyone's curious, Rabbit Brush Archaeological Services has a website. Also, that was my next question. Yeah. Rabbit Brush. Rabbit Archaeological Brush. Archaeological, Brush Service. Archaeological Services. And then Rabbit, uh, not Rabbit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> rabbit. Yeah. yeah. Soft tea. Yeah. Uh, it was going to be Sagebrush Archaeological Services, but there's already that. That sure. already exists. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, and then cool. music-wise, after those dates, just you just have to, I don't know, see us. Keep in touch. Keep in touch. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, cool. Brian, thank you so much for coming in. It was yeah. uh, learned a lot, especially about archaeology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And, uh, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. Certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sour dough. That's patreon.com backslash the sour D-O-E. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.